pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. 水煮肉片. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Well, hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David G. Martins, and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And my guest today comes from a family of great chefs. In 1967, his uncle and father opened Le Gavroche in London. Since 1991, he has been running the restaurant, which has two Michelin stars. He's a TV judge and presenter on BBC show Master Chef to Professionals, and has been a presenter on all three series of Great British Food Revival. A keen marathonist, he was born to the kitchen almost literally. Michelle Hu Jr., welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you. It's great to, great to be able to communicate with you through all this modern technology. I would all far this... rather be with you, sharing a glass and maybe some food. <laughs> soon, soon we can do this. So two important questions, uh, Michelle, before we start. Have you ever been to Portugal? Yes. Uh, well, actually... Yes and no. I've been to Madeira okay. several times, and I love Madeira. I love Madeira. I love Madeira people, um, and I love Madeira the island, and I love Madeira the wine. And strangely enough, oddly enough, um, I was supposed to celebrate wedding anniversary last year, and uh, we had planned a trip with my wife to go to um, Lisbon. And it's been, it's been on, our, on our list for many years to go to Lisbon, because we, we love Portuguese food. We love, we love everything about the Portuguese people. Obviously, with the coronavirus, all of that was had to be postponed. But one day we will get there. Perfect. Do you know any Portuguese words? Uh, obrigado. There you go. Almost Is that okay? Words. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, bacalao. Bacalao, yes. I love bacalao. <laughs> Ted, you, you literally almost were born in a kitchen. Can you tell that story? Yeah, that's correct. So um, uh, my father was working as a private chef. Uh, for the Cazalet family here in, um, in the UK, uh, in Kent, actually, so the so southern part of England. It was a, pri a private family, so um, a private house. So very much like um, Downton Abbey. I'm sure everybody knows what Downton Abbey is. I love Downton Abbey, yes. <laughs> there, there you go. So he was the chef. He was on his own. And his kitchen help was my mum. So that, you know, that they, were, they were working together to feed the family. And the family was a very important family uh, back in the 60s. And they were actually the horse trainers for the Queen Mother. So, you know, it was royalty. So he was very fortunate to get this job. I was conceived, maybe not in the kitchen, but... <laughs> perhaps in a pantry. Okay, perhaps next door. Yes. <laughs> Hope not. But I was, my mother went into labor um, whilst she was cooking with dad for the family. Uh, and, uh, and so had to be rushed to the hospital. And the very next day, she was out of hospital, and I was in the kitchen, in a professional kitchen. So there you go. And your family, your cousin, your daughter, your dad, it was a great chef, of course, your uncle. So growing up with your parents, I guess since you were in that kitchen, who did more of the cooking at home? Was it your dad <laughs> or was your mom? Did your mom take charge or no? Um, well, you, you know, my, my mom is actually a very good cook. Um, and, um, and takes cooking seriously. Sometimes actually at home as a child, it was most of the time it was mum that was cooking because dad was working. So we, we, ate, we ate well as children, we ate very well. Nothing fancy, I mean, really, really nothing fancy. It was very often cheap cuts because we didn't have any money at all then, you know. So it was cheap cuts, but beautifully cooked, fresh ingredients. And we would, we would come together 
as a family, especially when dad was off on the, on the Sunday when we would eat as a family. And I think that's very important. Do you remember any dish you, she used to make? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the great French classics, you know, a blanquette de veau. So the, the flank of veal, mm -hmm. slow cooked, poached, and then cream goes into it. And it, you know, it's just ah, amazing, amazing. I wish I could tell people that my mom used to make a fancy French dish because she doesn't even know how to make a, a bad Portuguese dish. So you're lucky on that one. <laughs> so with a lot of members being in the food business, was basically, was your destiny basically set to be a chef? I, I think so, you know. Um, I, I can't imagine myself doing anything other uh, than, than working in the hospitality industry. Obviously, you know, but I, I chose my, my career path to be a chef, a pastry chef and a chef. But I, I really do enjoy everything about the hospitality industry. So I find myself very much at ease going in to the dining room, uh, meeting and greeting and, and occasionally taking an order. But, you know, making sure that everybody is 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 really enjoying themselves, trying to be the perfect host. I love wines um, and I, I get involved very much in the, the buying of the wines and the tasting of the wines to go with, with the food. So yeah, I, I am you know passionate about our industry in general. You did your training in France and French chefs were very known for their ruthlessness and discipline in the kitchen. And maybe your dad was like this as well. But when you took over <laughs> of your restaurants in, in the 90s, 1991, what was the biggest difference you found between what France was doing at the time and England? Wow, that's, um, that's an interesting question. I've never actually thought of it that way. Um, Let's think together now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking back and the, the French, in, French chefs in, in the 80s, actually 70s, 80s, were unchallenged, that they, they were very much up their own backside, if you see, if you understand what I mean. They, they were very pompous, arrogant. Their way was the only way. Now, I, I think in the sort of mid to eight, late 80s, there were a lot of new young British chefs or even foreign chefs that had come to work in Britain or traveled to the US or traveled the world and came back with different ideas you know, different to French classic cuisine. Very often using French classic cuisine as a foundation, but then exploring and adding in great different flavors and, and, and uh, different technique. Whilst the French were laying on their laurels and, and, you know, snooty and saying, look, our cuisine is the best. We don't need to change it. Well, actually, guys, you really did need to. And things were happening, I think, I think in London, especially because, you know, I've live in London but there were so many great exciting places that were, that were coming up and exciting young chefs that were breaking the mold. I genuinely believe that this was a, a serious kick in the backside for the French uh, restaurant scene and it, and it got bad it was it was going downhill different now now, now the French have realized hang on a minute we you know if we want to be the best we've got to wake up to this and we've got to we've got to reignite the uh the sort of passion in our young chefs and and, and be a bit more sort of inventive and, and so i think for many years the french french cuisine was in hibernation it wasn't it wasn't the best when you took over your restaurant and your restaurant as a side note a lot of people might not know this but a lot of great british chefs worked there Pierre worked there, Ramsey worked there. So there's a yeah. lot of chefs that actually been through there. When you took over, what changed or how did the kitchen was run differently from your father? 
And do you believe those differences come from more from a personality standpoint or just a change of times? That, that was a tough, tough head chef. I mean, he, he was a real tough um, taskmaster and, um, and did raise his voice several times. You know, I mean, and he, he, he would raise his voice and you would listen. You know, he was stern, stiff, a bit old school, put it that way, old school. However, if you, if you were, you know, sort of in the front line and you got a serious, as we say, bollocking, you got all, you know, both barrels, at the end of service, he would always, always find you, put his arm around you, and maybe even give you a little kiss, and maybe even give you a glass of champagne. And he would say, look, that went wrong. This is how you're going to do it next time. Stronger together, we're going to learn and we're going to do better. So he was, you know, fearsome, really fearsome but very, very fair, very fair. So, I, you know, I've always learned from that, I, I think. And, I, and I, I think, you know, that is the way I want to be remembered as well. That, you know, strong, strong, but fair and always prepared to listen to other people as well. I had an internship in 2010 in Brussels. And although, I mean, I, didn't, I don't speak French, but um, it got a little better, but... I did have some French chefs yelling at me at 7 a.m. And I can tell you it's not exactly the most pleasant thing on earth because you do listen. So you're still kind of waking up. I was like, it's just 7 a.m. But anyway, <laughs> unfortunately, our, our industry, food business in general, a lot of people suffer from depression. It's long hours. Sometimes the pay is not great. How do you as a restaurateur try to promote a working environment that is efficient but not so stressful as to drive someone towards burnout? Yeah, that, that is uh, something which I think we're all too aware of now. Um, and and that is that is great, but I think the hospitality industry um, still has a long way to go. Um, but we are definitely on the move, and we are definitely addressing this problem. For my part, I mean that that is one of the things that I, I looked at almost immediately when I took over from Dad and the hours, because it, you know everybody was working far too many hours, ridiculous hours. And, and I think you get to a, a certain stage where you say burnout. You become not as productive as somebody who is fresh you may think you're as productive and you may want to work those extra hours and you know you think it's a bit like chefs you know, chefs medals isn't it hey i worked 80 hours this week and i feel great about it you know yeah that's a load of bull you, you, you know, <laughs> it really is so i think addressing the hours is very important and making sure people get decent time off and providing breaks during the day as well i think that's that's vital and I, I'm, I'm always one as well to look at them and make sure that they, they eat and drink correctly. So making sure they're well watered and don't drink too much bloody espresso coffee. Chefs drink gallons of coffee. I don't get it. I'm with you on that one. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous because, it, it, again, it, it, it's not good for your mind. Mm -hmm. You can't think straight when you've had 10 shots of coffee. You just can't. Yeah. So things like that and, and taking a proper break, even if it's, you know, 20 minutes, but getting out of the kitchen and, uh, and having something good to eat, not yes. just a can of fizzy drink and, you know, a cigarette or another. Yeah, it's, yeah. So, and it's a whole holistic thing, I think, you have to look at. So most importantly, the hours. And uh, because if you think, you know, the work conditions, I remember the, working with my dad in, in a couple of restaurants that he had in the city. And, and the temperature in there, in this, in this kitchen, it was in the basement. 
it was like uh, the, the veg section particularly, it was hitting 40 degrees centigrade. Yeah. So, and this was without actual, you know, if you start working physically in that heat, you are literally drenched uh, and you are drenched all day long. It, it's, it, it's terrible. Now you won't find kitchens like that. They're, they're properly ventilated uh, and there's more induction stoves as well. So the, the kitchen isn't as hot as it used to be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a whole lot of things which are, which you know, I think in the, the kitchens have evolved and got better. Uh, we very often now do small batches of cooking or it's cooked a la minute, so to order. No big pots that you have to carry. And, you know, I, I think in, in, in general, things are a lot better, but we still have a way to go. We certainly. Yep. COVID hit a lot of businesses. Mm. And your restaurant as well. You know, it was it's it's it has been a rough time for everyone. Michelin stars normally can be an expensive experience for a lot of people, right? To go and try. Therefore, not everyone can try them, I guess. Did the last year change the way you see hospitality going in the future, especially high-end restaurants? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think this will leave a, a, a bit of a almost like a scar on, on our on our restaurant scene. It will take a long time to get back to pre-COVID. For instance, um, at, at Le Gavroche, what I, I did on the first, the first time we were allowed to reopen, which was back in 2020, spring, late spring 2020, I cut the menu down. We, we, we normally had an offer of uh, 10 starters or entrees, 10 main, main courses and 12 desserts. And then we, all, we always ran specials as well. So it, it was big, very, very big. So to, I had to streamline that because um, we had less staff, we had less, well, and for costs, obviously for costs. So we, we trimmed the menu down to four entrees, four mains, and four desserts, which meant that we were saving on food costs because there was less waste, uh, saving on staff costs because we needed less staff, and, um, and we, were, we were just generally far more efficient. I personally think as well, the food actually was better because we were more focused, we were focusing on fewer dishes. So I, I, I think that when we reopen in May, because we're going to reopen in May, I will probably head in that direction. And I think a lot more restaurants will too. Cut back the offer, the quality will go up. And you're more efficient as well. And we actually managed to cut the hours as well for the staff because we, were, we had less time. You know, we weren't producing as much sort of mise en place stock or, yeah. or food in the fridges. So I think we were far more efficient. And I think that, that is something which I have learned and I, which I will take forward. I think the days of these massive, massive a la carte where you've got a huge choice uh, are probably numbered. Do you still enjoy cooking nowadays? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What, what what did you cook last night, Michelle? Let's just share. <laughs> Can you tell me what did you cook last night or yesterday morning? Doesn't matter. Last time you cooked, what was it? Oh God! What did we have last night? I'm trying to remember. Last oh yeah, last night I, I posted it on Twitter actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I posted it on Twitter. Got a huge response. It was basically an like an oven bake of leftovers. So I had boiled potatoes left over from the previous day. Maybe they were two or three days old. But anyway, they were a, don't tell them. <laughs> I chopped them up. I, to which I added some shallots. I had a 
two mushrooms left in the fridge, chop them up, put it on top, a bit of garlic because everything tastes better with garlic. Mm-hmm. And then, then I had uh, a little bit of copper, you know, the, uh, the Italian, which is gorgeous. I had a little packet of, well, not a packet. It's like, I had like six, five, six slices of it left. Okay, let's put the potato, the uh, copper on top. And then I had a, a little two chunks. I had a chunk of telejo at the back of the fridge, which had gone a little bit, shall we say, spicy. You know what I mean? It was really in the back of the fridge. <laughs> it really was. It really. It was one of those days. Yeah. And a little little piece of morgue, which is a French cheese with a blue vein in the middle. Again, it had seen better days. So I trimmed it up, cut that on top, whacked it in the oven, really hot oven, two hundred degrees C for about twenty minutes. My God, that was good. It, it was it was a leftover heaven, I'm telling you, leftover heaven. So simple food sometimes is the best one, right? Well, well it, exactly that, exactly. And uh, tonight, I think tonight I think we've got pasta. Pasta, and I'm going to knock up a little pesto. We've got some basil, so pasta. And, yeah. Perfect. I'll stop by at seven, seven-ish. Is that okay? Seven-ish, I'll stop. I'll stop by. So let's imagine you can go to an island. You did mention Madeira, but do you have any other island that you really love on top of your head you can think of? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I love traveling. I've traveled the world. Unfortunately, nowadays it's going to be very difficult. But um, I, I particularly like the Indian Ocean, and um, there's, there's one place which we I'm, I'm yearning to go, and that's to go back to the Seychelles. I love the Seychelles. Seychelles. Okay, so imagine the Seychelles are all for you, just for you, you and your family. I'm not going to be that greedy. To that island, you can take one protein, one veggie, one fruit, and one dessert. What do you take? Protein. I can take with me, or I can I can get it on the island. No, Michelle, don't don't start. You take with you. <laughs> don't don't change my logistics here. You take with you. <laughs> okay, one protein I can take with me. No, it has to be something piggy. So a piece of pork, maybe. I mean, a nice piece of shoulder of pork. Yeah, a veggie. A veggie. I would probably go for a potato. Plus potato as a veg. I mean, and yeah. I think. Yeah, potato and pork goes really well. Of course, well. yeah, a fruit. Fruit, mm, a perfectly sweet, ripe Alfonso mango. And a dessert? Chocolate. would have to be chocolate, but I mean, it's, it's probably got to be, you know, proper chocolate. Mm. And do, have you tasted Alain Ducasse's chocolate? I have not, no. Yeah, he, he makes some amazing chocolate. He's not fair because he's good at everything, right? Alain Lucas is one of those chefs. He's just great. <laughs> he's just great. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. He is. <laughs> uh, so just imagine next time you go to Seychelles, a pork shoulder, before you start packing any clothes, mm-hmm. you just start imagining that because, okay, that, that sounds good. What was your first memory of taste? First memory of taste? Mm-hmm. Uh, easy. Well, actually, not, not that easy. And, I, and I'm not sure if it really is the first memory of taste. But, but for, for me, the food, the very, very important food memory for me is when my father was cooking in his private house. And I guess I was probably about four, maybe five at a push. I, I, I think four. He was making vanilla ice cream. And obviously with whole milk and pure vanilla pods. But back in the, back in the 60s, this, especially in this particular kitchen, it didn't have an electric ice cream maker. It was a wooden pail yeah. with a metal cylinder inside and pa- wooden paddles inside and a hand. To churn it, basically, yeah. yeah. Churn, yeah. Uh-huh. 
basically a, a hand crank shaft and it churned them. Now, I, for me, in my mind, as a, as a child, I made the ice cream. I was churning the ice cream and churning and churning. And I, I remember it now that, that my arm was aching, was aching. And I probably only did 10 turns of it, you know, but, but I made it. It was my ice cream. And I will always remember taking, when dad took the lid off the top and put a scoop, a spoon in there and chucked it in my face. <laughs> that was the most amazing sensation taste moment moment uh, uh the vanilla ice cream was so so smooth and uh it's, it's making me salivate now uh, and to this day vanilla ice cream is my favorite ice cream but it has to be made properly most underrated ingredient for you underrated ingredient salt salt i mean I, I, i use i think it's about 13 or 14 different kinds of salt at the gavroche restaurant Different salt. I mean, salt. Salt isn't just the seasoning. Salt. Salt can be a, a very interesting flavor profile itself, uh, and different salts for different meats and different fish and different uses. So, mm -hmm. yeah, salt. Overrated. Overrated ingredient. Tomato paste. Chefs. Chefs just chuck a lot of not all. Uh, not all. A lot of chefs and amateur chefs chuck tomato paste in all sort in, in all kinds of sauces and and it's just squeezed yeah. in and you know no it's the best breakfast you can have the best breakfast you can have has to be a really good sourdough lightly grilled with salted brittany butter so it's got the crystals in it And my wife's homemade orange marmalade. Okay. That is heaven. Who wants to drink for that? What do you drink? Coffee? Yeah, espresso coffee. In the morning, espresso yeah. coffee. The strangest combination food-wise, some people might do it when they put two or three ingredients together that you just cannot accept. Um, I once tasted uh, in a restaurant that will remain nameless. Um, <laughs> White chocolate and caviar. I know where the restaurant is because someone mentioned that here. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm sorry. It just doesn't do it for me. It, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of white chocolate anyway, but it, putting caviar on it completely ruined the chocolate. But more importantly, the chocolate completely ruined the caviar. So the name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Those are actually our two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. Uh, I, 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 yeah, certainly turned a few chickens in my life. Um, breaking dishes? No, I've still got loads of time to do that. Perfect. At the end of the podcast, I tell my, my guests also to sell their fish. That's also other Portuguese phrase. Sell your fish, it means to talk about yourself. You know, in this case, where people can find you, let's imagine that the world go back to normal a little bit. You know, what's in the future for you? I know you also have the Roo Foundation. You know, what's, what people can expect? Just sell your fish, Michelle, for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, as soon as, as soon as we can reopen, we're, you know, we're back in Mayfair and we're going to reopen and, uh, and, and go hell for leather. Um, can't wait. The whole team can't wait to reopen the restaurant. And um, 
But I've, I've also got a restaurant in the Langham Hotel. We're looking at a new concept there. Uh, so we'll probably reopen that one in the fall uh, with a, a, a completely different concept, something really modern and, and different, different. Because it, you, know, you know what? We all need new challenges in life at any stage of our career. Uh, so I'm really, really excited about that. Maybe another book. Yeah, I, could, I think I could, I've got another book in me. I could write another book. Um, and then making sure my, my daughter and son-in-law, uh, their restaurant can reopen and survive as well, because that's kind of, it's, been, it's been very tough for them. And of course, the most important thing, I'm a grandfather now. So, you know, I've got, I've got a little bouncy grandson that I have to look after. Which How is old wonderful. is he? He's nine months. Oh, perfect. Okay. Yeah, it's one. I love being a grandfather. I have, you know, some people say, oh, you, you know, I don't want to be a grandfather. I'm getting old. No, embrace it. I love it. One question I didn't ask you, I forgot, because you love to run. Mm. You're one of those people, for some reason, Michelle, you like to go out of the door and just start running. Uh, long, long distance, not short distance. When you run, it's silence or music? Silence. I, I, silence. I, I can't run with, with a distraction. Um, for me, running is, is obviously uh, fitness. Yeah, physical fitness. It's, it's wonderful, physical health. But more importantly, uh, it's actual mental health. And, and it's, for me, it's a great release. Uh, so to have that release, a proper release, I need to hear my heartbeat. I need to hear my breath. Um, and then I need to hear my thoughts. Um, and I can, can work through problems. I can work through any kind of issues. Uh, and I come back after a half an hour, an hour, or even more, two hours. And I feel, okay, physically tired, but mentally refreshed. And when you cook, silence or music? Uh, no music in the kitchen. I just want to know that. So, Michelle, thank you very much. This was a pleasure. I wish all the best for you and the restaurants now opening again in May, hopefully, right, in a few months from now. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, just start running if you want after this. Go prepare your pasta. Make sure there's no f cheese in the back of the fridge anymore. <laughs> no, that's not. I had that yesterday. <laughs> it might be dangerous. So thank you very much. This was a pleasure. Thank you, David. Great thank to you. talk to you. Thank you. Have a great one. Bye -bye. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michelle, for coming on the podcast. Don't forget, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash dmartins. That's D-M-A-R-T-I-N-S. And no, again, you're not really buying me a coffee because that will be weird. I don't want any of those lattes things, okay? Anyway, don't forget to follow the podcast page on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes or the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you have any questions for me, you can send me an email to info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe and write to this podcast. I will see you next Wednesday. Stay safe. Be happy. Adios.